0: When somebody gets shot in Vietnam, you, you yell out, Corman up, Corman up, because you have a Navy Corman that takes care of them. What happened is one of the first casualties of that ambush was my corpsman, uh, Doc Weiser. Uh-huh. And so I, I basically, when I saw that, and I saw he'd been hit pretty badly, I rushed to his aid, and he was kind of in the middle of a stream. He had a sucking chest wound. And with a sucking chest wound, if you don't close it off, uh, the person is going to die because they can't get air we Knew how to do that, and I had what's called a wrap a in my first aid kit. So I wrapped him and wrapped his chest to, to keep him from suffocating. Uh, and unfortunately, I was a uh, pretty good game for a sniper, and I got hit uh, by a sniper bullet or a couple of bullets that hit me so hard that it knocked me down the street. Oh.
1: Welcome back to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe that great leaders are listeners and good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, and today I'm excited to share with you my conversation with General Arnold Panaro. General Panaro is currently the CEO of the Panaro Group, which is a Washington-based firm offering business development, strategic planning, and federal budget and market analysis. He's a retired Marine Corps major general and is also the chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association. He's been consistently recognized as one of the 100 most influential individuals on U.S. defense. But the lessons that he learned about leadership and defense throughout his career did not start with his time at the Pentagon, but rather his time on the battlefield in Vietnam. As a young man, he was thrust into leadership in the midst of the Vietnam War, and has subsequently learned from many mistakes, miscalculations, successes, and unfortunately wounds. But all of these aspects of leadership development has led him to be the expert that he is on U.S. defense today. And In today's episode, we talk about his time in Vietnam, what he learned from the battle for Hill 593, and what it was like being in the Pentagon on 9-11. I will say that this was prior this was recorded prior to the Russian invasion on Ukraine so none of his expertise was used on that topic but we do talk about the disastrous withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan late last year His expertise on that topic is fascinating, but what's even more fascinating is learning from his experiences in leadership in Vietnam and throughout his time at the Pentagon later. And he has lived an extremely full life, and his experiences can help guide us on our own paths in leadership. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with General Arnold Panaghi. Well, General uh, Pernaro, it's an honor to be with you and get the chance to learn from you and speak with you. I want you to just start by introducing yourself. Kind of, who are you? How did you get to where you are? And what's kind of your path through leadership?
0: Well, thank you, Zach. It is such a privilege to join you and join your podcast. I mean, my story is very similar to a lot of other people. I grew up in a small town in Georgia, Macon, Georgia. Uh, My father uh, had served in World War II, along with all my uncles and my mother was a dietitian in World War II. Uh, so that background, but I grew up in a small town in Georgia. Um, you know, went to high school and grammar school. I walked, you know, a couple of blocks. To, I, was a, I went to Catholic grammar school and high school. Both schools were like two or three blocks from my house. Uh, then I went off to college and uh, basically uh, graduated in 68, which was the peak year of the draft for the Vietnam War. So I volunteered for the United States Marine Corps, um, was trained as an infantry platoon commander, served a tour in Vietnam, wounded in combat, came back and was on the staff of the Marine Corps basic school where we train all the new lieutenants that were going to Vietnam. I went back to graduate school at University of Georgia then lucked out and went to work in the United States Senate for the then uh, young senator from Georgia, Sam Dunn, and worked for him for 24 years. Uh, was privileged to basically move up in the ranks there and ran the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, for 14 years. Then I went in the business world and because I wanted to learn the profit and loss and uh, went to a company that allowed me to learn that, rose through the ranks there and ended up running some of their larger organizations. And then about 11 years ago, I decided to just be a consultant because I wanted to focus on uh, other things. I was very, I wanted to finish the book I was writing, my first book on war and politics, the battlefield inside Washington's Beltway. I was very concerned about some of the trends I was seeing in government, particularly in the Pentagon. And I wanted to speak out critically. And I knew I couldn't do that if I was working for a big defense and aerospace company. Um, And I was tired of going to lots of meetings. I mean, when you're in the (laughs) the government or in the business world, uh, you you just meet issues to death. You spend all your day in meetings. And so I wanted to have a little more flexibility. Um, um, Since then, I've written two books. Uh, I'm chairman of the largest defense association in the country, the National Defense Industrial Association. I served for many years on the Defense Business Board, advising the Secretary of Defense on world-class business practices that we need in government. I also have been chairman of the Secretary of Defense's Reserve Forces Policy Board uh, for 10 years and, of course, uh, stayed in the Marine Corps Reserve and ended up uh, rising to the rank of Major General and having the privilege of commanding. The largest division in the Marine Corps, the fourth Marine Division. So I've had a very blessed and varied career in uniform, in government, in industry, and in then private sector. Um, but, that, but a lot of people have had kind of the same thing. So I don't think I'm unique in this regard.
1: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your service to this country. It's remarkable what you've been able to accomplish uh, in your service in the military and then out of service on Capitol Hill and and through your leadership. And I think it's it's amazing to hear your story and how many times you said just risen through the ranks. I think some people are just kind of born with that natural leadership ability. And it seems like you have. And how much of that do you think comes from the military service of your father and from other family members in World War II? Did they teach you a lot of leadership things that they learned? Or Or was it really just natural ability?
0: Well, I think it was a combination, but i will I will tell you, I learned a lot from my father and mother their their dedication to hard work. My father, after the war, was a small business contractor. My mother was a school teacher. She sought taught in the then segregated black schools in Georgia mm. uh, when many people wouldn't teach there, but she basically felt a moral obligation there. They were hard workers. we really had no money growing up. I mean. Uh, my uncles all served in, in World War II and I saw their example of hard work. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't think my dad ever sat me down and said, son, here's some leadership lessons, but I saw, I learned from him just the way he operated in his life. I do remember Mm -hmm. one thing and it's kind of, uh, remarkable, uh, when I was working in the Senate in the seventies and eighties, I remember my father, uh, sitting me down at one point and he said, son tell those senators to watch out for China. And I mean, nobody paid any attention to China then. They couldn't even build plastic umbrellas well. Right. He said, China wants to take over the world. I mean, this was like 30 huh. to five, 40 years before anybody was thinking about China. So I think about my dad, what a great example, my uncles. And, and as you know, the World War II generation, uh, My, I have 10 grandkids and two of my granddaughters went to Arlington National Cemetery to visit the grave of their great-grandfather, my wife Jan's father, Albert Fitzwilliam, my Mm. wife's mother, Anita Cassidy Fitzwilliam, who actually grew up with my mother in my hometown of Macon, Georgia. Albert was a sailor in World War II. Anita was a nurse in World War II. So, and on their tombstones, it talks about their service in wartime. This greatest generation was such an example to all of us. I had the privilege of working in the Senate with Bob Dole with Danny Inouye, with Ted Stevens, legendary uh, people that served in the military, John Glenn, John McCain from the Vietnam War. So I I learned by example in watching the leadership traits of the other people. And I guess I have to say I probably did have some natural instincts um, that, that helped in that regard as well.
1: Well, yeah, that greatest generation is just built differently than we we see today. And there's a lot to learn from them. And you've got kind of to join that legendary strand of people serving on Capitol Hill with your service in Vietnam. Were you drafted or did you join the Marines at that time? What did that look like?
0: So actually, in 1968, when I was graduating from college, that was the peak year of the draft. And I say, everybody I knew got drafted that year, but Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. <laughs> and because my father said, Arnold, you don't want to get drafted, you'll go in the army, you'll end up in Vietnam. Number right. two, I went to my local draft board that was run by a lady that had been running it for a hundred years, named Business Beasley. My older brother, Anthony, who was two years ahead of me, had gone and asked for a deferment for graduate school. She didn't give it to him, so he wrote her a nasty letter. So Mm -hmm. when I went and met with her about a deferment for graduate school, she remembered the Panaro name, small town, Macon, Georgia, and she said to me, if we don't get you in June, we'll get you in July. So I volunteered (coughs) for the Marine Corps because I didn't want to, the recruiter, then a major Jim Ray said, oh, because I didn't want to go in the Air Air Force and Navy because they wanted pilots and that was a six year obligation. And he said, oh, you you can come in the Marine Corps, it's only two years and, and you'll be an officer. Well, the truth mm. of the matter was, it wasn't two, it was only two years if you failed officer commissioning school and were sent to Paris Island the boot camp. I learned that the hard way. So I actually volunteered, um, went in through officer candidate school at Quantico, then the Marine Corps basic school. And the truth of the matter is, I ended up in Vietnam as an infantry platoon commander as a Marine faster than I ever would have if I'd have been drafted in the Army.
1: <laughs> so you go in uh, to Vietnam as an officer, correct?
0: A second lieutenant, yes.
1: Second lieutenant, that's amazing. So let's just talk about your service in Vietnam for a moment. When you land in Vietnam, what's kind of going through your head? What's your what's your first thoughts when you get there?
0: Well, I just finished twenty one weeks of of what we call basic training as a as a lieutenant at the Marine Corps Basic School in Quantico, and all the training was about how to operate in Vietnam. You know, patrolling, mm-hmm. uh, defensive position, offensive position, ambushes, and basic. Uh, how to basically operate in, in a Vietnam battlefield. And uh, that wasn't a lot of training. And right. uh, I was very apprehensive. Uh, we, I flew out of San Francisco. Actually, uh, a bunch of my buddies and I got there. And of course we had the high and tight Marine Corps haircut and we'd heard about all these crazy people up in what was called Haight-Ashbury. So we thought we'd go up there and check them out. And um, we got into the kind of the hippie part of San Francisco. And we looked down this long road and there were these all these guys standing around motorcycles wearing these black leather jackets on the back. They said, hell's angels. Well, we didn't know what they were, but we were Marines. So we figured we'd go in there and kind of show them a thing or two.
1: Right. And
0: uh, obviously, we lost that fight. They beat the living you-know-what out of us. So <laughs> when we show up at the airplane the next day with a lot of bumps and bruises, the first lieutenant that was the aircraft commander, he didn't care what we looked like just as long as he had everybody on the manifest that was supposed to be there. So I flew from San Francisco to Okinawa. We spent the night in Okinawa. Then then we went on a plane into the da dang. When you got off the plane in the da dang, you could smell the gun smoke. You could smell the mm. the the oily thing. You could hear the helicopters. You saw these machine gun positions, the sandbags, the bunkers. I mean, you you realize right away you were in a war zone. And um, you know, you can be you're pretty apprehensive. Um, that first day, I was sent to uh, assigned to the Seventh Marine Regiment of the of the First Marine Division. So I had to fly down to El- Landing Zone Baldy, which is where the regimental headquarters were, because it's the protocol as a new second lieutenant, you have to meet the regimental commander. Uh, I got there. Uh, nobody. They just said, "Go find yourself a place to sleep on the floor or sleep on the ground." The next morning at 0700, I had to knock on the hatch of the regimental commander. His name was Colonel Gildo Cotaspati. He was in a bunkered position. He looked like you would expect a Marine colonel to look. As a right. second lieutenant, I hardly had ever seen a colonel in the Marine Corps. And I said, sir, Second Lieutenant Panaro reported an order. So he looks up and he says to me, dry socks. I said, sir. He says, lieutenant, make sure your men wear dry socks at all times. That is all. That was my whole end call with regimental commander. I go to the landing zone. I'm going to now be choppered down to landing zone rider because I'm going to be in 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. I land there. Uh, Waiting for me was Captain Jim J.K. Van Riper, the Lima Company commander. He said, Lieutenant, uh, you're going to be the 1st Platoon commander. We're going in the field in five minutes. Go get your gear. So basically, I had to go to the supply hooch. Get my rifle. The, the the supply clerk said, Well, Lieutenant, you want a 45 like all officers carry? I said, Heck no, I want a M sixteen because it's got 17 rounds and it can fire on automatic. Right. Um, and then I got my hand grenades, I got my first aid kits, all the stuff you would normally get. And then I said, Okay, I need dry socks. He said, <laughs> We don't have any dry socks. I said, No, Colonel Cotter's body said, I gotta make sure we have dry socks at all times. He said, Lieutenant, we don't have any dry socks. There are never any dry socks. The only way you dry your socks out is you take them off at night and put them on your chest when you're sleeping in the heat from your body will dry them out. Well, anybody that's ever been in combat, particularly in the jungle, you don't take your boots off at night because you don't know when the sappers were coming in. You don't have time in a firefight to put your right. socks and your boots back on. So we never had dry socks. We also never had heat tabs for our sea rations, which eating, eating those things cold wasn't very good. So supply in Vietnam. So I basically – was out in the field. with. A, I just met my platoon. I'm out in the field on my own within a day and a half of when I landed in Vietnam.
1: Wow. So you land in Vietnam. You're out in the field. Did you feel prepared? Because, I mean, really, the orders you get was dry socks. There's no dry socks. You're about to meet the men you're, you're going to lead. I mean, how do you lead those guys? Were you prepared?
0: You know, when I look back, I wish I had paid more attention to my training in the basic school. Mm-hmm. I wish I had been better prepared. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that that I should have done a little bit better early on. The thing that saved me was, I, was I, I just somehow had a knack for navigation. So in those days, there was no global positioning system, no electronics. You had a lensatic compass and you had what's called a one to 50,000 map. So you did everything with your compass and your map, and I never got lost. I always knew how to get my platoon from point A to point B, and that the troops, and they had so many lieutenants that couldn't read a map and got lost all the time. It, it, they, I inspired confidence in them. Now, I was supposed to have 50 people in my platoon. Uh, I was lucky on any given day to have 25 or 30. I never had a staff sergeant. I never had a sergeant. All I ever had was lance corporals and corporals and they were all draftees, and there was a lot, large turnover, obviously from casualties, uh, and 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 basically the Marines that came to be had only 10 weeks of training, and mm. they were all draftees. And, and of course, they, they did what their country asked them to do. I also had some of McNamara's 100,000. Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense. Right. The draft was so unpopular then, he said, well, you know what? We have these mental category fours that the, marine, that the military had never recruited before because, frankly, their IQs were such that they wouldn't make good pe- members of the military, nothing against them as human beings. He said, well, I'm going to do an experiment. Let's draft 100,000 of them and just see how well they did. Well, I ended up with some of them in my platoon. They came from very low socioeconomic backgrounds. They really had a very difficult time operating in the field. They had a difficult time even learning how to operate their rifles. Uh, they were really decent, good people, uh, but they were a danger to themselves in the platoon. So over time, most of the McNamara, 100,000, who never should have come in in the first place, I had them go back to the rear where they could have a safer job. Good Marines, good people. They never should have been in the military. I think Rock, Robert McNamara, that was one of the worst military decisions anybody ever made. He made mm-hmm. a lot of other bad decisions. But the bottom line is, I don't think I was as prepared. And in my, in my company, the people in my platoon, uh, most of them were short timers, meaning they hadn't been there a very long period of time. Right. I was lucky, though. My company commander, J.K. Van Riper, had, was on his second tour in Vietnam. He and his brother were twins. They're, they were legendary Marines. I was so lucky that my company commander uh, was so experienced and was so helpful. But I wish I had been better prepared.
1: Right. And I think that's even a, a testament to a, whether you're leading in business and education and in, in the church, whatever that might be, is being prepared is, is very important whenever you're going into a, a battlefield. And, but you had to, I mean, you got to go in with what you got. So, how long were right. you in Vietnam?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because the year I was there was they had the highest number of casualties of the war during that year. Hmm. Some days we were losing 100 killed in action a day. Um, the average lifespan of a Marine Corps second lieutenant in Vietnam was generally a couple of months.
1: Uh,
0: I lasted five months. Uh, I got wounded, seriously wounded on January 4th, 1970. So I'd been there about five months. I was the senior second lieutenant in my battalion because I had lasted that long. And I actually was getting ready to take over a company because I was more senior. And unfortunately uh, that was not to be, we, we got uh, in a firefight on January 4th and, and I didn't, uh, uh, I had to be better out of that.
1: Right. Well, let's talk about that. that's the battle uh, for Hill 953, if I'm not mistaken. And you were awarded a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. So can you kind of tell the story of that day, the January 4th, 1970, what went down and how did y'all get out of it?
0: Well, the couple of days before, uh, most of the time I was in Vietnam, I was in the Quaissan Mountains, and that's about 17 miles southwest of Danang. And we, our main job was to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was the way the Chinese brought supplies from the north into the south to the Viet Cong. And to do that, we we moved every day, we patrolled, we put out nighttime ambushes to try to catch them coming down the trail. And the day before, during our patrol, I'd come across some built up areas and some big weapons which is very unusual. So Hmm. um, that got to the attention, and we'd been in a couple of skirmishes and firefights that day. It got to the attention of the regimental commander, Colonel Cattaspati. So he basically decided to fly down to our area. Obviously, I didn't see him, but he got with Captain Van Riper, the Lima Company commander, and um, they sent orders to me as the first platoon commander. They wanted me to push into the built up area to see if we could figure out what was going on there. And of course you don't say anything over all we had to communicate was the PRC 25 radio. You can't talk about, you know, where you're going in the open. So you have what's called thrust points. You basically uh, have predetermined points on the map on your one to 50,000 map. and, And they will say, okay, um, Lima And I was Lima 1 actual. That means I was the platoon commander of the Lima Company 1st platoon. Captain Van Riper was Lima 6 actual, meaning he was the company commander of Lima Company. Colonel Cotaspati, he had a call sign, well-deserved, I'm going to tell you in a minute, called Grim Reaper. He was Grim Reaper 6. (sighs) meaning he was a regimental commander. So they said uh, from Thrust Point Christmas, because this was right after Christmas, and I knew where that was on the map, go up 4.5 clicks and right 2.3 clicks so that told me where i was supposed to go when i studied that terrain uh, you always want to be on the high ground in a military operation this was going to take me up a draw between two fingers of the mountains which is the high ground which i said this is really not a good idea you know this is what i call ambush conditions you're going to go up in a draw the enemy could be on the high ground you're not on the high ground So I radioed back uh, to Lima one actual be advised, you know, my my assessment is this could be alpha Bravo, meaning ambush territory um, over. And so I was sending him a signal that I didn't think this was a very good thing to do. Um, He came back and said, Lima one actual, this is Lima six Uh, grim reaper six says, move to contact. What that means was carry out your orders and move to contact. So in the jungle, in the triple canopy jungle, you typically had to move very close to each other and not have a lot of separation because if you had a big distance between your men, they'd get lost. So, however, because I knew that we possibly could be moving into an ambush situation, I violated every, what we call the school solution and all the tactics. And I told uh, the, the squad leaders to separate, you know, out, you know, by 10 to 15 meters now i wa- I moved at the point because you always had to because if you weren't up at the point with your point man uh you know he would get lost, and so um we started you know moving to contact, and sure enough, we got ambushed uh, it ended up being a very grim day long firefight uh situation, uh just as I had predicted um, and what happened was uh, basically um you get when somebody gets shot in Vietnam you you yell out up, corpsman up corman up" because you have a navy corpsman that takes care of them what happened is one of the first casualties of that ambush was my corpsman uh Doc weiser huh. and so i i basically when i saw that and i saw he'd been hit pretty badly i rushed to his aid and he was kind of in the middle of a stream he had a sucking chest wound and with a sucking chest wound if you don't close it off uh, the person is going to die because they can't get air we knew how to do that. And I had what's called a wrap in my first aid kit. So I wrapped him and wrapped his chest to, to keep him from suffocating. Uh, and unfortunately, I was a pretty good game for a sniper. And I got hit uh, by a sniper bullet or a couple of bullets that hit me so hard that it knocked me down the stream, knocked off my helmet. And we, I never allowed any John Waynes in my platoon. You had to have your flatjack bucket at all time zipped at all times you had to have your helmet i never allowed soft covers in the jungle you had to wear your helmet which was very hot and hot heavy but you had to keep the chin strap on but the bullet hit me so hard uh it knocked me you know down um uh down the stream and and my rifle got knocked down the stream and i'm thinking to myself boy i'm gonna do a lot have to do a lot of paperwork to explain why i lost my rifle that was what i would say (laughs)
1: oh Um, man so here
0: i am and I had my radio man pull Doc Weiser to safety. Um, and um, then I also knew because I'd been hit from behind, I had thought the, 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 the ambush was coming from in front of us, but I had uh, my radio man radio the coordinates to the company commander of where I thought the enemy fire was coming from. But I'm, I'm laying out in the middle of this stream and, and rifle shots are dinging all around me. The sniper was trying to re-zero in on my position. And all of a sudden, I hear some pounding of, of boots coming my way and, and, and a, 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 one of the Marines was coming to try to help me. Um, and what had happened though, to make uh, earlier in the day, the third platoon commander, Lieutenant Eric chase had been shot in another firefight and captain Van Riper said, I want to merge the third platoon and the first platoon because they didn't have a commander. So I actually had both my first platoon and Lieutenant chase's, third platoon is it turned out the Marine that was coming to help me was in the third platoon. I didn't even know the individual. He comes down, he, he kind of lays on top of me. Um, and, and I said, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. Um, and um, he didn't move. And then I kind of rolled him over uh, cause I was rolling over and um, pulled him to the side of the stream bed to kind of get out of the line of fire uh, unfortunately, uh, he had been taking the sniper bullets. The sniper had actually zeroed in on my position. And um, his body was between me and the sniper. And he took the bullets that, that absolutely would have killed me for sure. Um, I didn't know him. Uh, his name was Corporal Roy L. Hammonds. He was, uh, you know, barely over 20 years old. He'd been in Vietnam already 12 and a half months. He was going home in two weeks. There was no way he needed to come out. He was in a totally safe position. There was no reason for him to come out and try to help me, but he did because that's what Marines do. And Mm. what happened after that is uh, we had a day-long firefight to get our wounded and our dead out. We had to fight our way up to the top of the mountains. We tried medevacing people earlier in the day. Unfortunately, the helicopters got shot down. We also had what's called a Neil Robinson evacuation where a helicopter hovers ahead, drops down a bucket, and you put your wounded in the bucket. That didn't work. So we basically had to fight our way to the top of the hill, kill all the enemy on the way up, but we didn't leave anybody behind. I, I refused to be evacuated till I got everybody else out. And so at the end of that day on the top of a hill that looked like it had been blown to pieces by artillery and firefights, uh, Corporal Hammonds and I, went out on the same chopper. Um, Obviously, I never got to talk to him, um, you know, but he saved my life without question, gave his life, saving my life. When we landed at the medevac uh, area, I was put on a gurney and he was put in a black body bag. Uh, And of course, I never forget his sacrifice. Every day I wake up, I commit myself to making him proud of, of how I live my life.
1: Mm. I mean, it's just an amazing story of a bunch of Marines that were willing to pay. I mean, the ultimate sacrifice, Corporal Roy Hammonds being one of them and saving your life. um, It's pretty amazing. So after that, what was your recovery like?
0: Well, actually, um, my wound turned out to be pretty serious. And I'll be honest with you, I was so busy uh, uh, commanding my platoon and trying to get all our dead wounded out and fight our way. I didn't realize how bad I'd been wounded. Uh, Mm. They tried to medevac me. I just refused uh and, and the the funny thing was we always had this joke in the field about you never want to go to first bed first bed was the navy medical battalion that took care of wounded marines the marines didn't have doctors nurses or corpsmen and so i'm 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 on the gurney they're wheeling me into the operating room and i'm thinking it's the battalion aid station so i say to the people there and one of them was a doctor i said boy i sure am glad i'm not at first bed and the doctor says, "Lieutenant." welcome to first bed, they kind of knocked me out with whatever they were giving me anesthesia. I wake up the next morning in a kind of a a supply, a a, a squad bay with a lot of other wounded Marines. And they basically said, Lieutenant, your wound is so serious, you're gonna be medevaced out of Vietnam. So I'm thinking, oh great, I'm going to the hospital ships, good chow there. Well, as it turned out, they sent me to the hospital, Yokosuka Naval Hospital in Japan, because they couldn't handle my wound on the hospital ship so i basically uh flew out on what's called a nightingale plane which is a C141 that is um geared up for for medevac patients and so i was laying down with all the, the medical devices attached with a lot of other seriously wounded marines they flew us from vietnam to japan from japan we landed at Yakuza, uh, landed uh at a base uh, north of Yakuska Naval Hospital. We were helicoptered down to Yakuska, and then I ended up being in a, a room with two other Marines. As it turns out, Lieutenant Eric Chase, who'd been wounded earlier that day, was in the same hospital room with me, and then Bert Farley, who was in 27, uh, who had been one of my classmates in the basic school. So we were all in the same room um, at the hospital, and there were a lot of other, you know, Marines, and what I didn't know was what uh, what 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 I had run into on January 4th was the buildup of a North Vietnamese regiment that was going to attack LZ Ryder on January 6th. So there was a huge firefight on January 6th at Lansing's Zone Ryder, and a lot of Marines were wounded there, and they were all in the hot same hospital. So I couldn't move; I was not able to get out of my my uh, hospital bed for a long time. The other thing that happened was I'd been in the bush for five months. Uh, You know, you don't basically have hot shower showers uh, or hot or, you know, haircuts Um, and dry socks. Yeah. Or dry socks. The commandant of the Marine Corps is going to visit the hospital and um, you know, the problem was that, you know, he had limited time and they were only going to have him visit a certain number of Marines and rooms and the nurse, I forget. I don't know her last name. It was her name was Sam. She didn't like us. We were always giving her a hard time. She said, well, the commandant won't be coming to your room because you Marines are not presentable and you can't stand up and salute. So my door was open and I had the bed where I could look out the door. Eric and Bert were to my right, so they couldn't see the door. I see kind of the leading edge of the entourage. you know, walking down the hallway, they're going to go to the a bigger, a longer squad bay where there were more Marines. And um, I yell out, Commandant. And he basically stops and turns and he comes in our room. <laughs> and of course they were going crazy cause he wasn't supposed to. And I say, sir, um, Lieutenant Penaro reporting is ordered. And this is Lieutenant Chase and Lieutenant Farley. And we really wanted to see you, but the nurses said we couldn't see you cause we didn't look presentable. We were just blown up in the bush. We haven't had time to do all that. And we don't get any hot chow or anything. The commandant looks at all the brass that's there and says, make sure these Marines get hot chow right away. And he said, thank you, Lieutenant, and all that. So I'm telling you, we lived the life of Riley after that. But I'll tell you, the Navy nurses (laughs) hated us. The orderlies hated us because we were just troublemakers.
1: Oh, man, what an amazing story. Uh, I kind of want to go back to uh, the battle, uh, that January 4th. Um, yeah. There's there's some amazing just leadership lessons in there. The first one being is that you didn't allow yourself to be medevaced first, that you went out on the last uh, chopper that came in. What was the decision behind that? What was going through your mind?
0: Well, you're, you're trained from day one in the military. You never leave your wounded on the battlefield. And, of course, that's why I'm so incensed about how we left Afghanistan and left people on the battlefield that had fought Mm -hmm. with us and died with us and bled with us. You never leave your wounded on the battlefield. I mean, that's just part of the DNA of a United States Marine. And so I had an obligation. These were my Marines. I had an obligation uh, to them to to get them out as safely as I possibly could from the firefight that we were in. So it really was not, uh, uh, it wasn't something I really thought about. It wasn't something that that I made a hard decision about. I just knew as the platoon commander, uh, I was a senior person and it was my obligation to take care of my Marines and, and get, his, get our dead and wounded you know, out safely and get the other Marines to a safer position. And so that, that really was uh, one even a close call.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting too, the responsibility of a leader to make sure that your men or the people that you're leading are out before you and you were wounded, but you didn't realize how, how badly you had been wounded because you were focused on the people in your, in, in your command. And I think that, that that that's is just correct. fascinating that you don't that's even correct. realize.
0: The other, the other thing you're trained is you never eat before all your men eat. So mm. it, it, anytime you go to a chow hall, or anything like that, you never get in front of anybody else. The officer is always the last person, and at the food, there's no food, there's no food. I will be honest with you: we supply in Vietnam was terrible. I mean, you would think a country that was great as ours and had so many advantages, we were supposed to get resupplied every three days. So you would get um, two C-rat meals a day. Each of the C-rat meals had one thousand five hundred kilo calories. And they were the World War II Sea Rats. They weren't the kind of rations that people have today that are really good. These are just most of the meals are terrible. And they're very heavy because you have their in Big tent cans. And you, when you get six ma- meals, it adds a lot of weight to your pack. And the troops hate, you know, carrying the pack. And so sometimes they eat a lot of their meals up right away, which is not good. Mm. Um, and so you also were supposed to get resupplied with ammunition every three days. But because of the weather, because of the helicopters, because of a shortage of supply, you could go for, for five, six, seven. I mean, we went for, for a week one time when the only food we had was, our, you know, was rice that we got off of the Chinese rice humpers that we killed on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I'm not saying that to brag, I'm just saying it was a cold, hard fact of life and we cooked that rice uh, with water. And by the way, you didn't have any portable water. The only right. water you had was water you got out of streams and you had what was called a halogen tablet, which would purify the water. But when you did that, the water tastes like uh, not very good. So the troops <laughs> would not use their halogen tablets. They would get diarrhea. I used them, but I mean, you we basically would cook the rice that we got off the rice humpers um, because mm-hmm. that's all we had. I was mm-hmm. very uh, judicious in terms of ammunition because I always worried, uh, that you run out of ammunition. So you had to be very careful in a firefight uh, to not, you know, use all your ammunition all at once. These movies where they show these people firing these unlimited strings of, of weapons for, you know, <laughs> right. minutes at a time, that's just BS. That's not the way it is in combat. Now, I had, I carried 17 magazines. So I, I basically, in each each magazine, you could have 17 rounds. You could put 20 in, but if you put 20 in, sometimes a rifle would jam. The problem with the M16 was, they had just introduced it when I got to Vietnam. We trained on an M14. The M14 was extremely reliable. It would work in mud and bad weather. It was heavier than an M16. But when they manufactured the M16, there's a thing called the ejection lip on that, where once you fire the weapon, it grabs the spent shell and it kicks it out. But that thing didn't work, and so the rifles would jam all the time. So you're in a firefight, and you fire a couple of rounds, and all of a sudden your rifle jams. That is not a good situation. And that was because if grit got in the rifle, that's what happened. So we had to spend an inordinate amount of time making sure uh, the, the the weapon was clean at all times. And if you think of how hard it is to clean a rifle in the monsoons and in the mud, we lived in the mud. Right. Anybody that thinks that that life in combat out in the field is a picnic, uh, they had never been in combat. I mean, it was a pretty miserable living conditions every day, but you got used to it and, and What you would do is, uh, and our company commander moved us every day because you never wanted to stay in the same position because you'd basically expose yourself to the enemy. Uh, You'd get up before light because you want to start moving before light comes and get out of that position. You'd stop right after lunch because you had to dig in and dig your foxholes, get your lines of fires, put in your machine gun positions, call in your final protective fire to the artillery battalion, And, you know, and then uh, there you are. And once it got dark, you send out your ambush. When you've got a platoon of only 25 people and you've got to send 10 to 12 people out on ambush, you don't have a lot of people protecting the thing. You're supposed to have four people in a foxhole. So three people can sleep and one stays up. We never had enough people. So basically, we had had two people to a foxhole. So one of the Marines was going to be up 50% of the time. The problem was they were very tired and they'd fall asleep on watch. So the lieutenant, you'd have to get up all the times during the night to make sure your Marines weren't sleeping. So it's a very challenging situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many leadership lessons. Leaders eat last and leaders leave last are the two that I I grabbed there. You mentioned war movies that aren't very realistic. Are there any war movies that you've seen that you watched and you're like, that is very realistic. That is what it was like.
0: You know, I I basically have steered clear to most of the Vietnam War movies because I think, yeah from the reviews I've seen and the ones I kind of watched for five or 10 minutes were so unrealistic. The other mm. thing is they portrayed the U S military as baby killers. Um, yeah. you know, to this day, I have zero respect for John Kerry and what he did and what he said about his tour in Vietnam just was totally inaccurate. Um, and, uh, no, I really haven't. I I'm trying okay. to think, I don't think I've seen any that I think were very realistic about, um, Vietnam. The other thing is, despite his great reputation, I started watching the Ken Burns series on Vietnam, but after the first couple, it also turned into a situation where most of the people he interviewed talked about uh, what I thought was just an unrealistic picture of of what went in Vietnam. Sure, look, my life was terrible. What William Calley did was just awful. It's not the way the U.S. military is, but Mm -hmm. the vast buckle of the people that went to Vietnam performed admirably followed the Geneva Conventions, did everything their country was asked them to do. And, you know, people just hated the war in Vietnam. They hated the draft. They hated the people that served there. When we came back from Vietnam, people would spit on you in the airport. Uh, yeah. you get in bar fights. I mean, there was no respect for people in uniform. And, and frankly, the Vietnam veteran, people thought they were malingerous because they also had PTSD uh, and nobody knew what it was at the time. And and they've suffered greatly. The other thing that that didn't happen to other wars is we had Agent Orange. We were exposed to Agent Orange. And you have so many Vietnam veterans that have gotten so many diseases, many of which they don't survive, many of which give you chronic illness throughout your entire life. Uh, and, And our government for 10 years argued that a poison that destroyed every living vegetation in its path was not harmful to humans. Now, fortunately. When I was in the United States Senate, I was able to work on that and work with Senator Nunn and Senator Warner, Senator Robert Byrd, and change the whole VA approach to Agent Orange. In the first Gulf War, where there was something called Gulf War syndrome, I actually got mobilized for that war as a reservist. But when I got back, and I was staff director of the committee, and the VA again was saying, well, there is no such thing. We actually, I remembered all the Agent Orange stuff, we actually passed a law that said the government will take care of these, these military people that have these agent, these Gulf War syndromes, whether they can prove it medically or not, whether the VA thinks it's tied to the war or not. By the way, now 20 years later, or 25 years or 35 years, 1991 uh, later, they all admit we were right. It, there was a Gulf War syndrome. There was something that happened to people that were exposed to hydraulics. My oldest son, Joe fought in the second Iraq war, and, and he was a, a, a platoon commander, a tank platoon commander, and he was exposed to a lot of, of metal particulates and hydraulics. And, and it caused it, it's caused him some issues as well. So there's yeah. nothing beautiful or nothing good about war. That's why people that are in the military and the general officers, everybody says, you know, they're the ones that never want to go to war because we know what war is all about.
1: Yeah, and it's just, and it brings me while I'm sitting here listening to you speak about it just so much gratitude for what you and so many have, have done in service for this country that we, we live with every day and we don't think about enough. And so, again, Uh, Thank you. And I I have one more question on the Battle for Hill 953. I think it's just such an interesting story. At the beginning, you were talking about your orders of where to go and you're looking at the map, you're looking at the terrain that you've studied and you're saying this is a place where we don't necessarily want or need to go and it turns out you were right but whenever you sent that back to to the leadership above you, it was pretty much just blown past. You follow your orders, you go ahead. When you look at that, is there a leadership lesson in there to be learned about how people should lead and entrusting someone who is on the field or on the the floor who is seeing the terrain or seeing it right in front of them? Is there anything that you would have done differently if you were in their shoes?
0: Well, I think Colonel Cotaspati should have paid attention to the people on the ground. I mean, you learn in the military... Uh, you want to pay attention to the people that are actually on the scene. You don't want to operate remotely. He should have right. given me a lot more latitude. I, w- I will. And, and, and if I and when I was up in the ranks, I moved up in the ranks and had command of a Marine division. I, I, I paid a lot of attention to what my tactical commanders said was the situation on the ground. I always deferred to the judgment of the people on the scene. One thing I should tell you is so I get out of the hospital because what was called my overseas control date was not up. Even though I was non-deployable, I tried to go back to Vietnam, but Lyndon Johnson had put in a rule that if you were wounded and you were so serious that you were hospitalized for more than 60 days outside of Vietnam, you could not go back to Vietnam. I begged Mm. to go back, put in all kinds of administrative action forms, was not allowed to go back. Um, But because my overseas tour was not up, they sent me to Okinawa. So in Okinawa, I had this busy job as a training officer but one of the things that we were responsible for as lieutenants is when the brass was coming back from Vietnam, we had to meet them, their planes, and help them and make sure everything worked right. Sure enough, I see on the manifest that Colonel Kataspati is coming back to Okinawa. So Frank Newbauer, who uh, one of my basic school classmates, was in 2-7, and he didn't like uh, Kataspati either. So we said, you know what? We'll volunteer to be his escorts. So basically the two of us, And there were a lot of people on the plane, but we met Colonel Cotaspati, sir, 7th Marines, we're two of your lieutenants, we're going to take good care of you. And Frank Neubauer was going to take him to the club so he could kind of get a drink while he's waiting on his his next uh, flight. And he said to me, Lieutenant, I really want to make sure all my luggage gets on the right flight. I said, sir, you can count on me. I didn't remind him of who I was. He didn't remember who I was. So I got all of his luggage. He had a bunch of duffel bags. He had a bunch of trunks. He had all kinds of stuff. And I basically took all the markings off and sent them to the dead luggage section at camp Hanson. So he was flying out of Kadena air force base on Okinawa camp Hanson was where Marines that were wounded or dead. That's where they sent all their stuff for somebody to sort it out. So, so I, I made sure all of his stuff went to the dead luggage section at camp Hanson. And then of course, come back, he's getting on the plane You say, well, Lieutenant, did you get my luggage, you know, taken care of? Absolutely, sir, nothing to worry about. That was the end of it. I never heard anything more about it. And then as I'm the staff director of the Armed Services Committee over the years, I'd visit with my old company commander, J.K. Van Riper, who ultimately was promoted to Colonel. And he's visiting me in the Senate one day and he's saying, Arnold, you're never gonna believe this. I said, believe what? He said, what happened to Colonel Cotaspati? You know, who was our regimental commander? I right. said, no, I haven't heard anything about it, you know, my whole career, because I didn't ever follow up with it. He said he got court-martialed and thrown out of the Marine Corps. I said, you <laughs> got to be kidding. Why was that? He said, well, apparently his luggage somehow went to the dead luggage section at Camp Hansen, and when the Marines were going through it to try to figure out who it belonged to, he had all kind of weapons, uh, enemy weapons and other souvenirs of war that were illegal for him to bring back in the States. And they figured it out, and they court-martialed him, but he was thrown out of the Marine Corps. And I'm oh thinking, should I tell Van Riper what I did? I said, sure. <laughs> I think I can tell you how that luggage got to the dead luggage section. And he said, Arnold, good on you, buddy. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, there's just a failure in moral leadership there of the bringing home of of uh, contraband. But then also yeah. in how he led y'all. And I think there's a lot to learn there is that somebody well, really, who is in the middle of it knows better than the person sitting in the C- C-suite sometimes. And you have to be right. willing and humble enough to listen. And 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 he didn't. And it caused the I mean, tragically, the death of a lot of people in your under your command and you were injured and luckily made it out. But I think there's a lot to learn there definitely. Um, And so after after Vietnam, you kind of switch your service and your mission becomes the battlefield of Capitol Hill. What how did you get there? What was that path?
0: I lucked out because I was finishing up my graduate education at Georgia. I didn't have a job. My wife to be who had a terrific job in government lived in DC. So I figured I'd come back here. And then I saw this flyer on the wall. Senator Sam Nunn was starting an internship program. And it was a 10 week program. And you, you had to apply for it and you had to be picked for it. It was an academic internship. I said, well, that might help me for doing the 10. If I could get that, I'll have 10 weeks where I can do something while I'm looking for something else. So I actually got picked for it and got there. And, and they liked my work and they asked me to stay on. I started as the assistant press secretary and then moved over to the military side and ended up staying there as long as he was there, 24 years, and ended up moving over to the Armed Services Committee and running the Armed Services Committee when he was chairman and so hmm. i was just it was luck uh but i'll tell you it helped me a lot um my my service in the military of course obviously uh, he was very pro-military uh but i i had learned a lot of lessons uh, uh uh and i also had a really good instinct and i'd stayed in the reserves so i kind of knew what was going on because i was doing the military and 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 you know the pentagon comes over and and they can try to blow a lot of smoke on the Congress, uh, but it was good to have someone like me who kind of been in the military, was still in the military, had a lot of contacts in the military, so you could kind of get ground truth. So, uh, but I'll tell you the, the lesson you, you point out in business, in academia, in the military, you've got to trust your subordinates. You've got to delegate. They're going to make mistakes. When they make mistakes, have them learn from their mistakes. And, and um, um, you know, that's the only way you're going to succeed. No one in no one succeeds on their own. Cumulative wisdom is better than individual wisdom. Mm. It takes a a lot of people to be successful in the military. Nobody makes it higher up in the military without help from a lot of people. Same thing in the business world. Same thing in the the academic world or in the religious world. Wherever you are, uh, you've got to have good people working with you and you've got to trust them and, and let them do their thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much to learn there. And so you've kind of risen through the ranks again, and you end up in the Pentagon. And fascinating enough, you were in the Pentagon on 9-11. Can you tell that story? How kind of what happened? Where did you go? What was it like being there?
0: So I was actually the two star at the time director of the Marine Corps Reserve. So I had basically just given up by command of the fourth Marine Division, General Jim Jones was the commandant, he asked me to head up the Marine Corps Reserve. Um, and I was a two-star head of the Marine Corps Reserve and I had an office in the Pentagon. I was on the opposite side of the building where the plane hit. So what, what, what happened that morning, I was there early in the morning. You get cranked up pretty early in the Pentagon. Then we had a meeting of the Reserve Forces Policy Board, which I served on. Then I ended up years later chairing it for the Secretary of Defense. Um, I was up at the Army-Navy Club, which was about five minutes away from the Pentagon. So I wasn't actually in the Pentagon when it hit, but I'd been there earlier. But then we got all these messages about, Oh my goodness, the Pentagon has been hit. So we, we, we came out, we could see the smoke, we could see what was happening. Um, and uh, I knew immediately because we'd already seen what had happened to the twin towers. I knew immediately I was, I called our F 18s at Andrews that had the mission reserve squadron, but had the mission of protecting the watch airspace. I said, get airborne immediately, put up a, put up a cap, put up a a cap over Washington 360. Don't let anybody get through to the Pentagon, to the Capitol or to the White House. And so our Marine F-18s were airborne very, very quickly. I didn't have permission from anybody. I didn't have orders from anybody. I just did it. And actually the next day, they actually had me brief the Pentagon press because they wanted people to know that we'd actually got the protection up there right away. And so Hmm. then I end up... um, Uh, Meeting with President Bush six days later, he had all the reserve chiefs in. That's when he told us he was going to mobilize the Guard Reserve. Um, I was very impressed with Bush because he'd been in the Air Guard. He kind of understood the Guard Reserve. He's a very decisive guy. He runs a very tight ship. That was the day that he did the photo op. We were standing in the background, said Osama bin Laden wanted dead or alive. So I knew a lot of people. I had some good friends that were killed in the Pentagon that day the lot of Marine offices on the, on the side of the building that was hit, um, but, in, but the thing that I wanna say about that is the next day when the building was still smoldering, people were back at work. I was back at my office in the Pentagon and people were on that fourth, third, fourth, and fifth floor of the side that was hit, salvaging what they could. We call that Charlie Mike. continue mission. That's one thing you, you need to know about our Pentagon, not just the military, but the civilians and the contractors. Their mission focused. They're always going to be focused on performing the mission. And so right. um, that was a very uh, difficult time for our country. Uh, but I think our military rose to the occasion.
1: Well, it's inspiring to hear the stories of people in the military and civilians who, after a day and an attack on your office building like that, they're coming back to work the next day because the work and the mission is that important. It's amazing to hear. Um, and so many years have followed after that. And I want to just briefly with the little time I have left, just get your opinion on what happened recently in Afghanistan. You, you alluded to it earlier. Now you never leave people behind. But what is your opinion on what happened in Afghanistan?
0: Well, I think what happened in Afghanistan is we ignored the lessons we learned in Vietnam. You've got a lot of people right. say, well, it's not like Vietnam. It is absolutely like it's Vietnam. just
1: like Saigon. Yeah.
0: Well, here's what here's the thing, though. There's four or five elements of that. One is One of the biggest mistakes we made in Vietnam is we Americanized the war. We taught the Vietnamese to fight like Americans with American equipment. And then when we left in 73, they really couldn't use it because we had taught them our tactics, which weren't the guerrilla tactics. Uh, And that was the same thing we did in Afghanistan. We trained them to fight like Americans, the Taliban, the guerrillas, didn't fight like that. Um, And once we were kind of pulling back and once the contractors were pulled out, they couldn't operate the equipment. Number two, We waited too long to begin the evacuations in Vietnam. We absolutely waited too long to begin the evacuations in Afghanistan. Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense has said that everybody knows that. The State Department basically uh, failed in Vietnam, they failed in Afghanistan. Number three, we basically um, failed in, in the number one mission and that is we left our wounded and dead on the battlefield. All the people that worked with us because it was so precipitous because we basically didn't start soon enough, we've left so many people behind that. And, and, and our credibility has been seriously damaged around the world. Because if you're Taiwan uh, and the Chinese yeah. start poking at you, are you going to believe the U.S. when we say we're going to come to your rescue based on what we did in Afghanistan? And, you know, our military, I think, got impatient. They, they basically continued to recommend that we keep a residual force when the president disagreed, which he has every right to do. There's nothing in the law that says he has to agree with everything the military recommends. They just said, OK, what the heck? We'll just pull everybody out right away. They never should have done that. They never should have given up Bagram. Um, I yeah. think General Billy, when he said in testimony uh, this soon that Afghanistan was a strategic failure, I don't think he should have made that comment this soon. But we've made a we learned a lot of lessons that we unlearned in Afghanistan, and it's unfortunate and, and mm-hmm. you know, the truth of the matter is there's nobody in the military today that had any experience from Vietnam. Right. Um, so, again, you have to learn from your mistakes. And and I, I think as, as impressive as the evacuation was, which everybody's bragging about, we never should have been in that situation. So exactly. I, I would give them a lot of credit
1: for that. Yeah, it's like making a mess and then cleaning it up quick and then saying that was great but in reality you made the mess in the first place and it's failure to to learn from previous mistakes and again it's a failure of leadership like we were saying before is that you have people on the ground that know better than you do you should listen to them and i think that was a failure as well the other
0: thing that was identical to vietnam is what i call rosy scenario so if you look at what our military and our civilian leaders and hr mcmaster has written the book dereliction of duty they were telling the Congress and the American people everything's going great. Everything's going great. The light at the end of the tunnel. That was the same thing that happened during the 20 years we were in Afghanistan. Oh, everything's going great. Everything's going great. It's all working well. I call it rosy scenario. They were misleading people, either mm-hmm. intentionally or inadvertently, or a combination of both. And frankly, we need our leaders to be candid with our with our, us. And, and 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 you know, if 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 the American people don't support what you're doing, it's not going to succeed
1: right yeah i mean it's just a a terrible terrible thing and i'm I'm grateful to have you on and get to learn from your experiences and hopefully we can learn from the future, but you've got two amazing books that I would encourage everyone to, to go get the ever shrinking fighting force and on war and politics, uh, the battlefield inside the beltway. And I, I would encourage everyone to read those and learn from, from your experiences. I want to thank you again for being on. I want to ask you just one more question. The the question that we love asking all of uh, the leaders we have on is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Kind of that reflective look back on the amazing career of service, public service of duty and honor that you've had. What would you tell your 20? year old self
0: you know that's a very difficult question to answer and you know I and when I was 20 years old I mean we were in the peak of the draft everybody was worried about going into combat you kind of was uh you know the the New Orleans Mardi Gras thing you know let's be live a happy life because who knows what's going to happen to us I I wish I had trusted my instincts more I mean if 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 you're 20 years old you're going to have pretty good instincts trust your own instincts Do your preparation, do the hard work. I I basically did not work as hard as I should have in terms of learning what I needed to learn to be prepared to to command Marines in combat. So I I would say, um, and, and by the way, the young generation we have coming up now is truly amazing. I'm very encouraged. I'm not somebody that's down on our country because of all the bad news. Cause I look at the younger crowd like yourself. I look at the people coming out of college today uh, these are very talented, very committed, very dedicated people. They have goals. Be, be. I would tell myself as a 20-year-old, be in favor of something bigger than yourself. You know, have a cause. You know that whether it's climate change or social responsibility or making sure you're working for a corporation that does the right thing. Don't work for a corporation just to make money. Those are the kind of things I would would tell myself. The other thing is, I would say. You never know how long you're going to be on this earth. So make sure you pay a lot of attention to your friends and family because you never know how much time you're going to have. Um, and, of course, 20-year-olds, you think you're going to live forever. And, and unfortunately, in combat like Roy Hammonds, he never had a chance to succeed or have the life that I had. So you know, mm-hmm. always pay attention to the people around you. though. So that would be what I would tell myself as a 20-year-old.
1: Well, it's yeah, there's amazing lessons in there to prepare to be in favor of something bigger than yourself and to pay attention to your family because you never know when your day might be your last when Roy Hammonds didn't know that that would be his last day, but he went out serving his country and and really making sure that other people live and putting his body in the way of harm's way so that you might live and that we can speak to you and learn from your lessons today. And so I'm encouraged by the way that you continue to speak on, on him and his ultimate sacrifice and the many of men that you fought with uh, men and women of our armed service. We're very grateful for you and all that you've done in service for our country, but be in favor of something bigger than yourself is something that's really going to stick with me because every it's, it, there's so much to life that's more than yourself. And I think a lot of 20 somethings get caught up in that, but thank you for your encouragement and your, I mean, hope in, in the next generation, because i I believe we we have what it takes to do something great and and i hope we can continue it with this great country but general panaro thank you so much for your time it's been an amazing uh, to learn from you and to hear your stories
0: thank thank you a privilege and simple for dayless corporal Hammonds.
1: yes sir thank you sir
0: all Roddy. Right, right.